Well, it's good to be here this morning. I want to share this morning just a few things, three, actually three answers and a question. Uh, as I listen to the music today, uh, there seem to be a lot of the songs kind of pointed towards us coming to God and all those things. And after 30-some years in the ministry, there are a few things hopefully you learn. And uh, when I first started out, I uh, didn't get saved in a church. I was driving down the freeway. I had uh, a friend of mine from high school had been witnessing to me, and I threw him out. And I remember saying these words as I got he and his wife to leave. My office was, well, thank you, God, those fanatics are gone. That's probably the first time I'd thank God for anything in years. And uh, by the time, without that's another story, but uh, before I ever got to my exit to, to my apartment, uh, I was saved. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And my, uh, my friend called me a few days later and invited me to church. And he invited me to a, uh, to a Baptist church. And he said to me, he says, now this is not a regular Baptist church. Well, how was I supposed to know it was regular or not regular? You know, I'd never been to a Baptist church. Uh, I left church when I was young. And so I went, and uh, these people were uh, doing things I'd never heard of in church. For one thing, they were all happy. See, now I grew up in a church. But in the church, you never smiled. You didn't speak. The men nodded to each other. That was it. And then when you got out of church, you headed uh, for home or the bar or wherever as quick as you could. And so uh, here I go to this church, and all these people are happy. And, uh, you know, the guy starts to uh, preach. And um, uh, I'd never heard preaching like that before. And the singing was pretty wild. And, and the next thing I know, they're asking people to come forward for the baptism. Now, my friend had brought a couple friends. And they're all dragging me to the altar. And I'm like, no, 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 I was baptized when I was a baby. It's cool. Oh, no, this is different, you know. And I remember my dad told me about Baptists. They throw you in a tank of water. And I thought, my God, I don't even have dry clothes. And long story short, a few minutes later, my prayer was, God, I don't know what these idiots are doing, but if you've got something for me, I'll take it. I began to speak in tongues and... And uh, after that, I thought, maybe there's something a little different that I don't know about. And my friend invited me to church again, so I decided out of courtesy I'd go. It was Mother's Day, uh, 1979. And so I went. And uh, let me give you some advice. When you invite somebody to church, come early. Do not, because see, I was raised in a church where you showed up on time. Unlike most Assembly of God churches. You know, I mean, it was, it, was bad, it was bad taste to show up 20 minutes late. So I showed up 20 minutes early. I thought, out of respect, I ought to do such a thing. And I walked in, there were some people there, and, and uh, this, uh, this guy runs up to me. And I remember, this is, the, this is the Jesus people days. And, you know, he's got, still wearing bell bottoms, you know, and, he, and he's got a beard. And he throws his arms around me, and he hugs me, and he says, Praise Jesus, man. Double dose of the Holy Ghost. And he leaves. And I'm thinking, they let those kind of guys in here. I never met men who hugged each other, except guys who like guys. I thought, this is really weird. Where's my friend? And somebody asked me, he said, are you saved? And I says, I don't know. 
I says, if I die, it's cool. He said, then you're saved. I said, well, then I'm saved. You know, that's cool. Because you know. I didn't know what saved meant. And then somebody asked me, are you full of the Holy Ghost? I said, I don't know. And his wife said, do you speak in tongues? I said, yes. He said, you are. I said, good. And then my friend showed up. And I was really happy to see him. And we sat in the back. Because it was a little scary sitting anywhere else. And um, the preacher got up to preach. I'd never heard a preacher like this guy. He screamed, and he hollered, and he beat his fist on the pulpit, and he flipped people off. Oh, middle finger right up in the air, you know, and I'm like, ain't never coming back here, but before I leave, I'm going to clean that little guy's clock. You know, thankfully, I looked when they introduced me. He was missing most of this finger, so he took the next appropriate one. And uh, it was a good thing I didn't do that. And uh, I decided to stay. And that was, that was really a good thing. Um, it was a little hard on the people in the church. They weren't a real big church. There were probably, you know, maybe 80, 90 people. A fairly new church. They were only about seven or eight years old. But they were all pretty cool church people. And I wasn't a church people. And... A lot of them went to the pastor and said, you know, you've got to do something about that guy. We need to get rid of him. I mean, look how he looks. And, and you know, because I, I just show up however I want to show up. And, you know, and I was a little different than they were. When you go to the altar and you're praying and your shirt slides up a little bit and your gun's hanging out of your belt, that tends to, like, quench the whole prayer service right there, you know. And after that, a deacon would meet me at the door and hug me and kind of pat me down and, and uh I promised him not to wear a gun anymore, and you know. So, anyways, the pastor he uh, he didn't really lie to him, but he did mislead him a little bit because he said, "Don't worry, I'm taking care of it," and he wasn't lying. He was taking care of it, but they figured taking care of it. He was figuring out how to get rid of me. And what he did was not only did he pray for me, but he uh, I told him right from the get go. I said, "Man, you know, I says God's called me to preach," so he took me under his wing, and I went everywhere he went. He went to the hospital, I went with him. He went visiting, I went with him. I, and he was a new pastor. He'd only been preaching a few weeks as far as pastor. He'd only been the pastor a few weeks before I came. So we kind of learned, you know, and he says today, you know, you're lucky. You learned from all the mistakes. He said, yeah, your mistakes look better on you than me. And um, so, you know, things were going well. I was happy. I was single. Uh, you know, I, I, had, I had all these things in my life I'd never had before. I was joy and peace and and uh, then I began to learn about what it was like to be around God's people. And how many know that sometimes being around God's people is not as easy as, as you'd like it to be? It's kind of like having family and then marrying in-laws. You know, they always talk about, you know, the mother-in-law. But, man, what about the brothers-in-law and the sisters-in-law and then their kids and... You know, it, gets, it can get pretty weird. And that's not even counting your own kids, you know. So I began to learn. I began to learn a few things. Our pastor was also an evangelist, and so he would be gone periodically for a week or two. And uh, I, actually, that was a good thing, uh, because if a man has more than one calling, uh, he should be exercising them. But what I found out was, on any service when he was gone... All the weirdness came out of the woodwork. 
It's like, we had this one guy who just had to testify. And when he testified, he had to preach. And you got this idea that he never agreed with the pastor. So his testimony kind of, in a backwards way, was subversive. And, you know, you, you learn this thing. And there were other people who, they were complainers. And other people didn't, you know, this and that. And it really began to bother me. Because, you know, I was... I was newly saved, and, you know, and I was just excited about Jesus, and I thought all of us were perfect, and I began to realize I was the only one that was, and uh, it really began to bother me. And one afternoon, I was out cutting wood, and uh, I was out by myself in the woods, in the swamp, and this is the first lesson I want to share. I, uh, cutting wood is a great thing to do. It's like, because your mind doesn't have to function on anything but cutting wood, you know? How many know that's good for you sometimes to get your brain off of everything? And so I, I liked it, and I was, you know, cutting firewood, and, and I you know, took a break, and I sat down on a stump there, turned my saw off, and my heart was really heavy over this whole thing of, of contention, and it just bothered me. And, uh, and it bothered me a lot because, you see, when I got saved... I had no family. Um, they completely turned on me. And so I was alone. I mean, I got fired for being a believer. You know, I went from somebody whose take home pay was $800 a week to being homeless. My family in the church had taken me in, uh, and uh, I used to live in their basement. Uh, but, anyways, I'm, I'm sitting down here on the stump. And I just began to kind of close my eyes, begin to pray, and begin to begin to worship in the spirit and singing in tongues. And, and uh, all of a sudden, I felt something on my leg. And I got open my eyes, and there was a chickadee sitting on my boot. And I looked, and I, mean, I just kept singing, and which is really weird because I can't sing at all. And <coughs> There were birds sitting on my chainsaw. There were birds sitting all around. There were birds sitting that came one lining on my knee. And, and I mean, and they're all singing. I mean, St. Francis didn't have anything on me that day. I was just, you know, like, uh, I, was, I, was, I knew this was something that was God. You know, I mean, this is just not normal. And I, I was just amazed. And the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, Just as I can draw these birds to your side, so when you're faithful to the Word, I can draw people just as easily. And it went on, and in a nutshell, what he was saying was, don't worry about all the other issues. Be faithful to the Word, and I will draw all these things together. I will put it together. Now, if you ever tried to herd a flock of chickadees, I think that would be impossible. But here all these birds came together. And there must have, I'm not exaggerating, there must have been 30 of them there. It was awesome. I, I didn't want it to end. I knew it was going to, but I didn't want it to end. For a long time I didn't tell anybody because I thought they're all going to think I'm crazy. But I have learned over the years that that lesson was very true. But the only thing I have to worry about is being faithful to the Word.
Because I need to explain something. Who I think Jesus is and who I want Jesus to be is often very different than who he really is. And the church's problem is we want to worship a Jesus that's who we want him to be. And we need to go to the Word. And when we proclaim the Word, we worship the Word. And He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we beheld Him. But much like the disciples of His day, they beheld Him and didn't understand who He was. And, and too often, we either read the Word, hear the Word, preach or whatever, and then we go ahead and write our own music and our own songs and our own scenarios and our own prayers, and we want to make him into who he isn't. And then we go, why didn't he answer me? How many times I hear people say, you know, if you pray this way, God has to answer your prayer. You need to understand something. God does not have to do anything. That's the first point of, of the whole idea of the sovereignty of God, is that he's God and we're not, and that's the end of it. And uh, so I'm okay when things don't work out my way because I learned a long time ago that God's way is a whole lot better than mine. That was the first lesson that really helped me make it through years of church planting and reopening churches. And trust me, if you're ever called into ministry and you get a chance to plant a church and you get a choice, plant a church or reopen a church, go with the planting because it's always easier to give birth than raise the dead. You know? It's back to life. But however, God still raises the dead. When I went to Joy Fellowship, the church was only a few years old, and I already had several churches I was pastoring, but this church had already closed. Uh, seven people showed up the first Sunday just to see who the new guy looked like. Uh, and they all got mad and left. But, um, you know, today there's 20-some years of history that proves that God is faithful. The second thing I learned was about friendship. Because without friends, we will not survive. We were not made to survive in family. Family you're stuck with. Say amen. I mean, you know, hey, if you're a parent, you're in that delivery room, whatever ends up squirming around on that table is yours. It's just the way it is. You know? Now, parents, be honest. Wasn't there some time in life when you really wondered if you could have said, I think I got switched. You wanted to say it? And, all right, one honest woman in the whole crowd. Or else you repent. No, it's true. I mean, you're, you're stuck with your kids. They're, they're there. And you love them. And I, I love my kids. I would die for them. I'm proud of every one of them. They're all adults. They're all serving Jesus. But I, I got them. I mean, it was, I didn't have any choices. And so when you don't have any choices, it's not the same as friends. Because friends are choices. And uh, early on um, in the ministry, I, I started out at Otisville. And, you know, our pastor, Gordy Aiken, who I think is one of the greatest pastors in the entire world, um, he, uh, you know, he, he found it like most pastors. He couldn't do everything himself. And so... I was involved in youth ministry and doing different things, and things were going. The church was growing. Youth was growing. Um, you know, uh, just things were going great. And uh, finances were up, 
And so he went to the board and said, um, you know, I think we need to really seriously look at bringing on, you know, paying for another pastor. And uh, they were all in favor of that. Now his plan was, you know, look, Bob's putting in 40, 50 hours a week here. If we pay him, you know, this will be great. We can get more out of him. First deaconess spoke said, now before we get started, I want to make one thing clear. Our church is growing, and we need to start getting a little higher class. So whoever we hire, we need a real minister who has a Bible school education. So we need to make that first priority. If he doesn't have a four-year degree, we don't want him. Well, they weren't thinking very much because their pastor didn't have a four-year degree. You know, it's like, you ever notice some people, you wonder if the brain and the mouth ever engage? You know, it's like... When they say they speak their mind, no, they don't. You know, just blathering idiocies coming out. And so, you know, the pastor, he sucked that up okay. And then another one said, we know what your plan is, you know, and we love Brother Bob and we'd love him and we want him to stay. But after all, let's be honest. One guy said, let's be honest. He's already donating 40 hours a week. Let's get somebody else and we'll have three pastors. So they went ahead and they made up their decisions and the pastor, you know, he came to me and said, Bob, I, I don't blame you. I'm sure you're going to leave. You know, he said, I, if I treated you this way, I'd leave. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to leave. I said, for two reasons. One, I'm called here. Two, these are my friends. And uh, so I didn't realize that God was about to really make sure and prove to me if I meant what I said or not. Because there really wasn't any skin off my nose. I mean, I was working. I could pay my bills, and I could donate the free time, and I was enjoying myself, so it wasn't a big deal for me. It was, didn't cost me anything to say those words, these are my friends. And they hired a fellow named Joe Coughlin. And Joe is uh, pastoring today in, in, in Holland, Michigan, he's, he's, uh, he's just he's one of my, my best friends. And we, it was just one of those guys we hit it off right from the get-go. I mean, right from day one. And we were just, you know, best friends. He was fresh out of college and, uh, uh, you know, just were, we were compatible at everything. Well, one of those dreaded things that youth pastors were expected to do back then was to take the kids to Cedar Point. I'm not Catholic, but there is a purgatory, and it's called Cedar Point. <laughs> when you have to take kids, that, that's purgatory. So we have this bus, you know, school bus. That's another point of purgatory. Remember back when all the, anybody had a school bus didn't run, give it to a local church. You know, so if you were a school bus driver for the local church, it was hell. It was past purgatory because you had to, I remember, I had to hang gallons of water, you know, put up stuff them under the seats, you know, and just, it was a mess. But we're going to Cedar Point. Joe doesn't drive school bus, and he still, you know, he never did. He thought he was smarter than I was. Why get a CDL and have to go through that? So, um, you know, by this time I'm married. We've got our first baby. So now traveling isn't quite as easy, and Shirley wants to go. And so we, um, <clears throat> we make all the plans, and we get the babysitter. Guys, how many know that when it's your first baby, they're only a few months old, mama's convinced no one can figure out how to take care of that kid? Got a church with 50 women in it, but none of them know how to raise a kid, you know. And uh, so, anyways, we finally find two women 
together that she's satisfied with. This is hard. We get everything set. You know, the next morning we're running around, getting everything ready, going to Cedar Point, and we're running a few minutes. We show up five minutes late. Now remember, I'm one of the two designated bus drivers. I'm the guy that helps set up the whole trip. I'm the one that showed Joe how to do all this stuff, and the bus is gone. Because my buddy Joe had this thing that he had to be so punctual that he could not. And people are like, Pastor Bob isn't here. He said, it doesn't matter. We have to set an example for the youth. And he left. Now, my wife didn't really know me that well yet, but her brothers grew up in the same town I did, and they told her, one of these days, you're going to find out he's not really a Christian. He's going to snap, he's going to go back to who he is, and he'll kill people. And that's not a joke. I mean, before we got married, she, her brothers actually took her out to dinner and said, you can't marry him. And she kept trying to tell him, but he got saved. And her brother said, you don't understand, God can save anybody but him. He'll kill us all. Haven't killed a family member yet. Considered it, but haven't done it. So anyways, I mean, this is pretty... wasn't fun. And um, so we went back and uh, Shirley spent the day with the two women that had the baby and I took their two little four-year-old boys and we went fishing. I thought that would be a good thing to do. We had a, it was a great time with the little boys. The next day, the pastor caught me in the church, and he says, I heard what happened with Joe. I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to do about it? So what do you mean? He says, well, he said, personally, I, I find that very insulting. He said, but, you know, I want to know what you're going to do about it. And I thought about it a lot that night. I said, you know what, Gordy? I'm not going to do a thing. So why not? I said, because Joe's my friend. And I don't know how he'd take it if I confronted him with it. And our friendship isn't worth a chance. And he said, but, but, but it was wrong. And I said, but our friendship isn't worth righting that wrong. See, in life, we're all going to experience a lot of wrongs. And somehow, in our society, we have developed the idea that every wrong has to be righted. That people have to admit they're wrong. And in our society, that's probably true. I mean, let a politician today say one thing, you know, and he's got to apologize to everybody under the sun. And then they can debate whether he's really sincere or not. You know what? That's really not how things are supposed to work in the kingdom of God. I can make things right by choosing to leave them alone. Joe and I are best friends. I doubt that friendship would have ever grown if I had forced him to admit that it was wrong. Because he would have been forced to fight for his point of view. And we probably wouldn't have become longtime enemies, but 
we probably wouldn't have become as close of friends. And I've shared this and people said, you don't know that. You could have been just as close of friends. I said, you're right, except that it's not, the chance wasn't worth it. Um, gentlemen, there are lots of things your wives do that don't worry about whether you're smart or not, but if you really care, you're just going to keep your mouth shut. Because it isn't worth fighting about. It isn't worth taking the chance that might be the thing that ends it. You say, well, that's so silly. Let me tell you something. I don't care who you are. There are days in your life when if the right person says the wrong thing, it can get you to, to snap or do something that most days you would not do. It's a fact of life. So when I look at things, I ask myself, this person's my friend. Is the potential fallout worth it? Because you know what? The Bible says it's to the glory of God to cover a matter. And I'm learning there are a ton of things that it is better for me to deal with by just simply saying, you know what, I can forgive this and move on. And you know what, Joe and I never talked about this. Joe did, never, did not know that I forgave him or let it drop. Because that's not forgiveness. I had one church where there was this woman who had made a habit out of coming up and saying things like, Brother, I just want you to know you offended me deeply, but I've forgiven you. She didn't tell you what you did to offend her, but she let you know very piously that you were forgiven. Until one day, an older saint said, Shut your mouth. If you don't have the guts to tell me what I did, I don't want to care. I don't really care whether you forgive me or not. You see, because what she was doing was calling on it. Telling people you forgive them uh, when they don't even know there's an issue is really just self righteousness. And I've had, I've had pastors arguing, I said, Let me ask you this. Every time God has forgiven you for something you didn't even know to repent of, did he come down with an angel and let you know that he forgave you? Well, brother, I always ask forgiveness. Really? I noticed yesterday you couldn't even remember the grocery list. How do you remember everything you've ever sinned? No one remembers every sin they've ever committed. And yet God is forgiving. So I learned the second lesson. If you're going to survive, friendship is very important. Now, there have come times in life when, yeah, things had to be dealt with. But most issues get big because someone, someone let them grow when they started small. That's the second thing I learned. Third thing deals with the big stuff. Years ago... When I was at Joy Fellowship, I, um, I had a fellow that became youth pastor that we became very, very good friends, very close friends. And, um, uh, you know, I probably at that point in my life was, one, was maybe my closest friend. And one day he said something to me 
at that point he had he was no longer uh, my church I had helped him and he moved on he was pastor in another church and I called him we were talking and he said you know he says you you've gotten too too powerful for your own good I have to bring you down and I'm like what are you talking about and we talked for a minute and I up and I thought that's the strangest thing I ever heard. A few days later, I get a call from our superintendent. Well, actually, that's not true, from our home missions director, because I was still under him. And he said, Bob, he said, uh, charges of embezzlement have been brought against you. And I'm like, what? And he went on, and this young man had went to the district and said that I had embezzled money from the church. And so I said, well, I says, you know, uh, what's the plan? He says, well, we'd like to have an auditor come. I said, boy, send them in. You know, so the auditor came in and, and um, went through all the books and wrote his report and said, nothing messed up here. Everything's accounted for. Nothing. And so we came back together, and the director let me see the auditor's report. And I said, well, well, praise God, <laughs> that's over with. He said, not exactly. I said, what do you mean? I said, it's auditor's report. It's, it's done. He said, well, now there's been a new charge brought. I said, you got to be kidding. The district's going to entertain another charge? I mean... He said, well, you know, it's this way it's got to be. He said, okay. So we go through that. It's a six-week ordeal, and it's over with, and I'm found innocent. And by now, this has turned into a blood feud. And, and uh, it was 18 months. 18 months of charges, one after the other. Um, Lowell Anderson was a pastor. He was a presbyter, and he hated it because every one of them fell to his head. And he had to convene it. And, you know, first of all, confrontation really wasn't Lowell's thing. Secondly, you know, we were friends, and it just, he hated it. And uh, it affected the church. We went from probably 120 to on Sunday mornings, I preached to my family one elderly couple and one single guy. I could put the whole church on one pew. But I hung on to two things. One, preach the word, live it. Secondly, take care of your friends. After 18 months, everybody was gone. People had turned against me. It was I, I'd reached a point, to be honest with you, where I began to think that maybe I was cursed of God, that everything was happening to me I deserved, that you know my sins weren't forgiven. Uh, I should have known better, but that's where I was. And I reached a point where I said, Lord, I got I got to do something. And so this was this was my vow. Every morning before my feet hit the floor, I forgave all the people involved. 
by name, prayed for them, and I, be, I told my friends what I was doing, and they said, do you really mean it? And I said, not a word of it. I said, honestly, when I call their name and ask God to forgive them and not hold this charge against them, my heart wants God to kill them. And that's not a joke. That's the truth, because my own little children were asking me, Dad, you know, is it true what these people say about you? You want reason to be angry. Every little kid you think you're the coolest dad in the world begin to question, you know, what kind of person you are. Somebody said, then why are you praying? And I said, because it's the right thing to do. And somebody said, but if you don't mean it in your heart, it doesn't, it doesn't count. And this is what I said. I said, you know, I've done a lot of studying about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a term of emotional involvement. Forgiveness is a monetary term. It's a, it's a business term. And I says, it means that if, if you owed me money and I had a contract, I had a business note, and I, and I wrote on that note, this debt is forgiven, you cheated me. And I decided rather to forgive you than fight you. And I wrote on that note, this debt is forgiven, and I signed it. And then a week later, I decided you were such a skunkwad, I wanted my money back. And I went to the judge. I said the judge would never let me have a penny because he would honor my decision over my emotion. And I says, if a judge of this world will honor my decision over my emotion, then this lie has been taught in the church so long that I have to have warm fuzzies before God really knows I've forgiven you is just a lie. God honors my decision over my emotions. And that's a lesson that all Christians should be taught on day one. God does not respond to your emotions. He does not honor your emotions over your decisions. That's why we can obey His Word. Because if we had to emotionally agree at all points and all times with His Word, it, nothing would happen. Because, friends, there are days when love your enemies is not my emotional makeup. Bless those who curse you is, a, is an act of obedience for me, not a desire. Years ago, a man looked at me and he said, you better finish, preacher, because you're going to be dead a minute after you shut your mouth. I said, well, you just hurry up and do what you've got to do because I've got a busy day. I says, you know what? God bless you. And he stood there and he said, how can I kill you now? Trust me, my emotion was, I'm going to turn you into a piece of cold meat. But God honored not my emotion, but my decision. Eventually things changed and worked out. People came back. People came back to the door and said, Pastor, we can't believe we believed what was said. We were deceived. I knew the day would come when I would meet this young man. He moved out of the area. The assemblies of God defrocked him. But I knew the day would come. And several years later, it did. And I knew at that point I would find out for sure if everything I believed was true. And we met in a store. I mean, we both just kind of turned around an aisle, and there we were. 
Now, he's about that big, and I'm a little bigger. And you could tell there was this just this look of, oh my God. And at that moment, my emotions took over completely. I walked up to him, I threw my arms around him, and I hugged him. And I genuinely cared for him. Because when you're obedient to the Word of God, your emotions will follow. Those three things I learned, and I've tried to live by them, and they work. And they're biblical. And once you get those settled, then you can move on and, and, and accomplish the kingdom's work. Because when, you see, that's what the devil does, is the devil isn't going to defeat the church of Jesus Christ in open warfare. I mean, if he stomped through that door this morning, you know, in his little red suit and his asbestos diaper and said, I'm here to fight you, We'd, we'd clean up on him. Why, the, the weakest faith person here would be screaming, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke. We'd dry, we'd, I mean, you know, heaven's angels would be beating him up and cutting him to pieces before he ever made it through the door. But the way he works is the way he started in the garden, with deception. Did God really say? It's always his question. Did God really say? One of the ways he does it is he gets us to focus on what somebody else said they said God said. And I'm so glad we got the book. You just go back to the book. And the devil, that's what he works at. But once you've decided, that number one, you're going you're gonna to be faithful to the Word. Two, you're going to be faithful to your friends. And three, you're going to obey regardless of how you feel. That pretty well ends the enemy's abilities to deceive you. And then you're able to focus on the reason we're here. Why does the local church exist? And a while back I read an article by a preacher who asked this question and it sums up everything about the church because you know there's this constant battle over what constitutes a successful church you know and of course numbers is usually pick number one you know you have a thousand people you have a megachurch you know and that's, that's God well megachurches have had bad things happen in their churches because of deception well, you know, you need a church with the right music. You know, you know, the right music. I'm schizophrenic when it comes to music. I mean, this morning I got in a truck, you know, hit my radio on, and I was listening to the little little country Baptist station out of Gaylord, you know, and all they sing is Southern Gospel, and they're convinced King James is the only thing in the world, and, you know, they don't even like Pentecostals. But I love music. And so I'm enjoying the music, and then the signal starts to get a little weak, so, you know, uh, I hit Smile FM, which is like the opposite of it. You know, it's it's almost a little too rockish for me. But 
you know, it's it's music. It lifts up Jesus, and uh, I can I, I can get along with that. And 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 it doesn't matter to me what style of music it is. And but some people are convinced that music determines, you know, how how good the church is going. And of course, you know, maybe if you have a big worship band, that's that that's a successful church. Um, some of the best worship times I've had is sitting around a campfire with this woman who played an accordion. An accordion got to be the most unspiritual thing in the world. I mean, you know, that's why it sounds so good at the beer hall. You know, it's just unspiritual. But, you know, when, you, when you're playing it, you know, and Jesus loves me, it's, it's great. You know, it just doesn't matter. So the music doesn't matter. And, of course, the preaching has to, you know, we go, oh, we got a great preacher. Well, for every guy you consider is great, there's a hundred of us that aren't so good. You know? I mean, uh, Come on. You can't. If that's judge success, then you know most people are in trouble. You know, because we got the greatest preacher in the world. Well, if you got the greatest, nobody else has got one worth having. So it can't be that. Now maybe it's the building, but I've seen people saved in bars, in barns, real estate offices. I've preached about every place you can preach. You know, so I don't think that works. But the guy answered the question with a question. He said, if your church ceased to exist tomorrow, would your community be worse off because of it? If your church ceased to exist tomorrow, would your community be worse off? Would they even miss it? See, a lady asked me one time, she says, Pastor Bob, I was traveling, preaching some meetings, and she said, why should I go to church? She said, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be ignorant, but she said, honestly, I get more out of the worship service at home playing my piano and singing the songs I like. And she said, I've been around so long that there's nothing that preacher's going to preach I haven't heard before. And she said, you know, the kids are gone and my husband still works. I've got lots of time to study the Bible. And she wasn't being stupid. She was being truthful. She had much more time to study than you could get out of Bible study at church. And she had been around long enough that chances are she wasn't hearing any new sermons. And she had a beautiful voice and she loved God and, and she could play the piano. And, and she says, I'm not telling you I won't go to church, but she says, why? I don't get anything out of it. And I said, your church, you're not supposed to get anything out of church. Church is about what we as a body do for the community. How do we become salt and light to darkness? And if we aren't accomplishing those things, then we, the church, have a problem. I've had pastors tell me that, you know, well, the things you guys do in Indian River, yeah, it's all social justice, it's social liberalism, it's this, it's this, because you feed the poor and you help people and you do budget counseling and you uh, drug addicts and you do this and this and this and this and this. You know, and you really aren't making an impact. Well, that little church in the last 23 years has probably sent 20 people into full-time ministry as missionaries, pastors, church administrators, and a host of things. Not to mention 
people who are in various areas of the country, you know, being salt and light in their own community. Hundreds of people have been saved there. Not hundreds of people continue to attend there. For one reason, a ton of them, after they get saved, get jobs and they move away to a, a better job climate. The Methodist Church, Baptist Church, uh, all the churches in town have converts from Joy Fellowship. But more importantly, when, when families hit hard times, they dial the church. When a school runs into a tough time, they call the church. And we're not it. We've worked in unity for years with other churches. I've mentored those pastors. And a couple years ago when Inland Lakes was having lots of problems and there was huge issues between the union and parents and administration and things had really got a point of physical violence, the superintendent called me and said, could you get the pastors to come to the next meeting? We need an influence that's going to change us. And she was as liberal as the day is long. Her idea of God was, you know, some woman that floated in the trees or something. But she says, we need you. We need something we don't have. And we're a community where the township government, everybody turns to the church. I'm not bragging, but I'm telling you this. God has been merciful to us, but we do make an impact in our community. And that's what the church is about. See, the world doesn't see Pastor Mike's preaching. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but the lost aren't sitting out in the parking lot listening to the speakers this morning. And your music doesn't impress them. I personally think the music's beautiful and, you know, but nobody's hitting the door because you got nice music. And for a church building, you got a pretty good building here. It's, but I don't see people coming through the doors because they want to enjoy the architecture. See, because it's not about them coming here. It's about us going there. And that's why I stick to the Word. That's why I don't need to make all things right. I don't need to take offense at everything. And that's why I forgive. Because the one thing I don't need is the devil bringing deceit into my life. Can come, you know, he has false guilt, you know, taking offense, doing this, doing this, doing this. You know. Bottom line is, that's not what I need. And I need to be honest, God isn't all that impressed with the preaching. I mean, come on, he's got Paul, you know, Billy Graham. I mean, I don't come close to that. Music, all due respect, he's got the choirs of heaven, 10,000 of angels. I really don't think our music's all that impressive. Not in light of that. Buildings, well, he paves his parking lot with gold. The gates of his city are giant pearls. Probably even the Crystal Cathedral isn't really impressive to him. 
You know what the most impressive piece of architecture there is in God's kingdom? Two pieces of wood made into a cross. Because that's where he chose to hang his finest artwork. And so the thing that impresses him is the reason why there is a cross. And we don't reach people by having church. We reach people by being the church. And you know what happens? We decide to be the church. We begin to find out that we can have vast differences of opinion. We can have differences in secondary doctrinal issues, forms of worship, and we can get along. Every Monday morning, the League of Extraordinary Ministers meets at a little cafe in Indian River. The reason we got that name is up in Sheboygan, in the city, they have CAMA, C-A-M-A, the Sheboygan Area Ministerial License. We're known as South County. When we looked at our acronym, it was SCAMA. We didn't think it was all that good, so you know, somebody picked that one and it stuck. But we have Church of God, Assemblies of God. We have Episcopal Church, the Franciscans at the Roman Catholic Church. We have United Methodist Church. Um, you know, we have a couple other community churches, Bible churches, and we all differ. We have a Disciples Church. We all differ, but one thing we're convinced of is that the church's role is to be salt and light. In our community services, all the pastors close together as we pray a blessing on the entire community. And people that have never darkened the door of a church have walked into a church somewhere and said, I've decided to come because Good Friday I saw nine preachers stand up together and pray for God to help our community. I never thought I would see such a thing. Maybe there's something to Christianity. Now, I'm not Catholic. I'm not Baptist. And I'm not Methodist. But uh, I've preached at all their district councils. That's right. I've preached at diocese meetings for the Roman Catholic Church. I've taught at their stuff. And the only people who opposed me were Assembly of God pastors. You know, I've never preached to the Assemblies of God in any of their conferences. It's, but I have for the others. Salt and light. Jesus said this, and, and, and let me just close and leave you with this thought. He said, let your light so shine. Let men see what you do. And they give glory to God for who you are. Slightly paraphrased. Now let me tell you how this works out. I was in the barber shop one day. That's why I still go to a barber shop for guys. Where we talk about, you know, politics and stuff. And uh, I was in the barber shop. I walk in, and there's this guy sitting there. I've never met him before. And he goes, well, Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. And he says, do you guys... And then the guy began to go rattle on about our church. 
They help this. They help the unwed mothers. They do this. They do this. And he sat there and he said, Now, guys, you need to understand something. I never went to church in my life. I don't intend to go to church. But if I ever change my mind, I'm going there because that's what a church is supposed to be. The guy has actually sent people to church. He said, The church is what it's supposed to be, that you can go there and you're going to hear things that are going to, that are going to change your mind. I don't know where that guy is going to end up, but remember, he's fulfilling what Jesus said. Men will see what you do and will give glory to God. The question is, does your neighbor say, thank God the Charlevoix Assembly is there? And if they don't, that's what we need to be about fixing. However, that has to work out. See, I'm not here, so I can't tell you the particular things you need to do. But I can tell you this. That's the goal. That's the measure of a church. And you know what? You can do that with three people, 300, or 3,000. It doesn't matter. You're not affected by money. You're not affected by numbers. You're not affected by location. Because the Spirit of God will do the things you can't do. All you have to do is be what the church is supposed to be. Please let me pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for this church. Now, this church, Lord, I realize is only part of the church. There are believers in Charlevoix and many places. I pray for this local congregation. Lord, that uh, where there has been hurt, there will be forgiveness. Where deception has taken place, we'll turn to your word and live by it. Where our emotions have taken over, we'll go back to your word. And we'll always remember that you act on our decisions and not our emotions. Lord, then I pray for the church as a whole for vision, that you would give them vision to reach this community. Not by just simply telling people they need to get right, but by, by touching the hearts of people, whether it's parents whose children are, are gone astray, or it's the addict, or it's the person who is who has everything and, and can't figure out why they aren't happy. Lord, whatever it is, let your church be the answer. I pray, Father, for a new birth. A new birth that's simple, plain, based on your word and obedience to it. I pray, Father, that you'll grant it. And Lord, help us to have the eyes to see what you're doing and not what we think you should be doing or what we want you to do. Help us to see what you're doing. Help us to honestly see where your hand of blessing is and follow it. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
I want to thank you for your patience, and I want to share something before with you before Pastor Mike comes. The most recent numbers we have in the Assemblies of God is that just shy of 60% of our churches are still rural, small-town churches. When you add in the number of urban churches, the inner-city churches, which also tend to be small and poor, we are still a movement, by and large, of small churches that are staffed by people who are dedicated and committed to the Word of God. And that's not to, to take away from big things. What I want you to understand is then, we understand for over 100 years, God has blessed our movement based on our people, not on our size, not on our money, anything else. And so when you begin to get discouraged and you think we don't have this or we don't have that, remember that God is still using the Assemblies of God, which is a movement of small churches, to fund and to man the largest missions outreach that has ever existed on the planet. Our missions outreach around the world is second to none. Our number of missionaries on the field, outreaches, churches, orphanages, plants we have, is amazing. And, you know, we need to know that. You need to know that. That God is still, without a lot of horn blowing, using this movement because it was based upon the prayers of a few men and women who gathered together. And they said one thing, God, because they saw no need to form another denomination. But they said, God, together, we intend to be the greatest missions movement the world has ever seen. And it has been accomplished and continues to be. So keep that in mind. And I, and I'm not bragging sense of you, but when other people or the enemy says to you, Look at your small other churches, denominations, no more of this. Just remember this. Around the world, the gospel is going forth in country after country after country because of this movement of small churches. And you're part of it. You're part of it. God bless you. God bless America.